On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Maud, and Maud is currently planning her escape from an emotionally, physically, and sexually abusive narcissist. It's a story of dehumanization, infidelity, suicide threats, stalking, and the fear of leaving. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Maud. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Very excited to be here. Big fan of your podcast, and I'm super excited to speak on it. Well, thank you for being here, and everyone who is listening, we rarely, if ever, in the history of the show, do recordings with someone who is still in the relationship. And I met Maud here, I guess, a couple weeks ago. And yeah, I think like a week and a half. A week, and, so. a week and a half ago. And it's hard for someone within a relationship to get a good perspective of what is going on. And uh, after listening to you talk for uh, for a bit, I realized when you kind of sent me everything that if it might work, you're a good shot at making it work. And and today you are doing this recording inside a car. Yes. In a parking lot somewhere or just on the street? In a parking lot on the street in, inside a, a, I would guess this is a strip mall. It's a strip mall. I'm in a strip. I'm in a, I'm in a, yeah, a parking lot in a strip mall. <laughs> in a parking lot in a strip mall. We're, we're off of, I guess, a data. Uh, is it a phone or a computer inside yeah, the car? Yeah, I've, I've got my computer open and I've got my phone for Wi-Fi. So we are as good as we can possibly be, technologically speaking. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's It's hard to do. And you're someone who n- kind of knows or has a really good sense of what you're dealing with, all the terminology, obviously. And the last but hardest thing for you to do here is leave. Mm-hmm. And you don't know how to do it. You don't know what it looks like. You don't know what it feels like. And it's just a, a really difficult thing for a lot of people to do. It's the last step. Some people deal with a discard and then some people, you know, they're abused to a certain point where they just don't know how to change it. And hopefully whoever is listening today gets inspired by you to do something about it. Hopefully for you yourself, you learn a lot from what's kind of going on and figure out what to do from here. So I really want to thank you for being here with me and with everyone today. And you're, you're going to let it all hang out here. So now, without further ado, Maud, the floor is now yours. You know, I wanted to start by saying that for anybody that's out there that's still in a relationship that's abusive, um, 
or, or anybody that's listening to this that hasn't been in an abusive relationship, but if it is curious to what it's like, and for those of you that have left, imagine a house that you love. It's the perfect house. You, you see it from afar and you, you love the way it looks and you go inside of it and it's just the, the layout is perfect. It's everything that you need. It's just the right size. It looks right. It smells right. It, it feels warm and inviting and friendly and safe. And you move in and you, you take up residence in this house and then slowly the house starts to change. And you feel all of a sudden that maybe there's, you know, something inside the house that's unsafe, whether it's like a room that feels different or um, a colder feeling. It doesn't feel as warm as it used to. And then the house starts to change a little bit more where maybe you can't see out of the windows like you used to, or maybe even the rooms reconfigure themselves. And then all of a sudden you start to feel afraid in the house. And then you, you think about leaving the house, but outside is even scarier. The world outside of that house is even scarier than what's inside of the house. And as you're making your way through this, you all of a sudden realize that this warm, loving, friendly, beautiful place that you once saw no longer exists. And now you are actually living in your own personal hell that you can't get out of. That's what it feels like to be in an abusive relationship. That's what it feels like for me is that I'm inside of this house that I once loved that I felt safe in, and I no longer feel safe there, but I'm afraid to leave it because of what lurks outside. Um, I, this, is, this is not my first experience with an abusive relationship, unfortunately. I was married before. My first husband was also abusive. However, he was not an, a narc. He was just an angry guy that had a... He was a recovering addict, and um, he just wasn't nice. And the abuse looked very different, but I had absolutely no idea that I was being abused until I was actually in this relationship. Then I realized, oh, my gosh, my, my first husband was also a, an abusive man as well. Um, as far as how I got here, you know, it's sort of like a converging of events. My Family life in some ways was very, very typical. Um, I have a mother and father and two brothers, and I grew up in what I believe was a loving household. My mother was a dancer. Um, she opened a dance studio and was out of the house quite a bit working on that. My father was a police officer in New York City and had difficulty compartmentalizing being a cop. So oftentimes he brought home a good chunk of rage and, um, you know, just, he just had difficulty dealing with some of the things that he would see during his day. So he tended to take it out on us kids. And we often, I often remember fearing my dad coming home, not knowing what kind of mood he was going to be in. Was he going to be okay? Was he going to be mad? Well, my dad was great. He was phenomenal. He was sweet and loving and caring and beautiful and a great man. But when he was angry, he was terrifying. So I just remember my childhood being this, you know, just this constant play between whether or not my dad was going to be in a good mood or a bad mood, whether this was going to be a good night or a bad night. And my parents fought quite a bit. 
I remember urging my mother to leave my dad many times when I was little. Um, I remember hearing them fighting, hiding in my room, and just getting a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. Um, and yeah, that's that's basically how my childhood inside my my home went. Um, I come from a long line of people who have suffered with anxiety disorders. My dad had one. My brother has it. My um, I believe my mother as well, and kind of going back for generations of people that struggle with anxiety. Um, so my anxiety worsened as a result of what was happening at home. I was also teased at school. So I felt kind of this, this building of this anxiety and, and I dealt with it by really diving. I was, I was a dancer by diving into dance, um, by really forming this huge bond with animals. I was a huge animal lover. And, um, I would just find these escapes in dance and in, in art and just trying to find ways to escape my anxiety. I think that was the point where my empathetic side was born. Um, I all of a sudden felt, felt such huge sympathy for anybody else that was struggling in their lives, anybody that was picked on like I was picked on, anybody else that, you know, had things a little bit rocky at home. I would find these wounded animals and bring them home and make them my pet and try to care for them. So the anxiety, the not fitting in at school, the empathy that was building was creating in me. And also the, oh, the kicker, the low self-esteem. Uh, I was teased a lot. I was very thin in school. I just wasn't one of the popular kids at all. Um, so all of that was sort of like a perfect storm to create who I was as a person for my future relationships. I was going to be somebody that was going to be codependent. I was going to be somebody that was going to be empathizing a lot and, um, and also trying to be accepted by people because I didn't feel good about myself. I found myself struggling when my friends were, were having boyfriends. I wasn't, I was, you know, I was always just trying to make myself likable for people. And um, that was how I created who, like I said, who I would be in my future relationships. Um, after I uh, got out of my house, I was a, a performer for many years and I had done a lot of um, touring and performing in New York. And um, that was a time where I just found it, found it difficult in general to have relationships with um, men. I just wasn't meeting anybody. I had a schedule that was opposite. I was, you know, working when everybody was off. Um, it just, it made it hard to meet people. So I would find myself not, I don't want to say lowering my standards, but I would say I found myself just sort of like hopeful for anyone <laughs> at a certain point, you know, we were just like, Hey, I'm lonely. I'm not, you know, I'm not in a situation where I easily meet people. So I'm just trying to kind of meet anybody. Um, and I didn't meet great people. I mean, I really did. There was, there were several people that I met that were great, but for whatever reason, things didn't work out. And then I met my husband, my first husband, and we got married and that was a mistake. This being the addict or not the addict? This was the addict. Okay. So the addict was, um, he had parts of him that were very sweet and kind and loving and wonderful, 
but he was controlled by rage from his addiction. Even though he was in recovery, he struggled a lot with depression, a lot with anger issues. And I would just find myself constantly being rattled by him. Um, he would, I would give you an example, like we'd be on the subway and we would get off the subway and I would avoid being the first person off because if I didn't know the correct way to turn for the staircase to lead out of the subway, he would say something like, I thought you knew your way around. I thought you were a New Yorker. Like, how do you not know? And I would think to myself, well, I don't know where every staircase is that leads to an exit. Wow. I, gosh, I'm, I'm such an idiot. I mean, I should have known, of course, we're on this train and we're in this stop. And of course the stairway's to the right. So I would just, that was something that I habitually did was just avoid leaving the subway first. Or if we saw a movie, I would avoid being the first to comment on anything regarding the movie because I'd be afraid that it would be not the right viewpoint or perspective that he would say like, how did you not see that? Or what are you kidding? Are we even watching the same movie? And I just think to myself like, Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, I, I must not have been watching that movie or what was I thinking? That's just, you know, so it were those sorts of things. And then he would have, you know, moments where he would get very angry and scream and yell at me. And um, I just knew that I didn't feel well in the relationship for a lot of it. I just didn't feel good. So you are hyper vigilant to, you know, the mood and the rage that might be happening. And uh, again, this kind of mimics you. Uh, growing up with your dad, you're you're waiting to see what the mood is when the door opens. You're trying to stay ahead of the game so those things don't happen. You're walking on eggshells at this point. Um, you know you are used to chaos in some sort of way. This obviously is a normal kind of thing in the sense in in the sense of like anger is normal, feels normal. It's not out of the ordinary. You know how to handle it. You've already kind of become a pro at handling it. So I'm just going to take a step backwards when it comes to your parents, you know, your mom and your dad. Do they ever get divorced? No. They stay together until my dad passes away. So they're married for a long time. Mm -hmm. When you see that happen that your dad is the way he is, your mom is the way she is, you ask your mom to divorce them, and then that doesn't happen, and they have a long-term marriage. What is your view of relationships at that point? My view was you stick it out. You, you, you stick it out. You know, you, you, there were, the thing about my mom and dad's relationship is that a lot of it was bad. A lot of it, you know, my dad had a moment of infidelity against my mom. They fought a lot, as I mentioned, but there were also a lot of good times. So you sort of used the bad times as like popping stones until you found another good time. The other thing, too, about a dynamic with a couple when they age is that they change over time. So my dad was still my dad, but he, his, his anger lessened and his anxiety increased. So he became more defenseless as time went on. And then at a certain point, the roles of my parents flipped so that my mom was really in charge because my dad had dementia and, and, you know, was, was struggling, you know, just with basic 
life care. So the roles flipped and then my mom was now the one that was in charge. So, and I, their relationship at the end was, was beautiful because they really needed each other. And although it was born out of true dysfunction, what they grew into was something to be admired and respected. So I saw the, the way that my parents' relationship played out. And I think it put that into my head too, of like, well, the future could be different or things may change over time Mm -hmm. or, you know, so yeah, that's, that's what you do. Stick it out. (laughs) So with that belief system and all the other things that you mentioned, you know, with your self-esteem, self-worth, with you, your standards of what you're looking for and all those things combined, you eventually get divorced in with this person, the yeah. addict, and, you know, you're going to start brand new. Did you have a new set of rules for yourself before you got into a relationship of what you were looking for? Uh, did anything get reestablished? Did you do any work on yourself before to understand what's going on? Um, I was very self-aware. So I knew what I was doing in my relationship with my husband. I knew that I was emulating my father. I was aware of what was happening, but as far as work goes, no, I just made my, I made a decision at that time. Well, I'm not doing that again. And I felt that at that point in my life, that that was enough, just simple acknowledgement and self-awareness that you're in your, your repeating relationship that your parent that you have with your parent or that your parents had with each other was enough to sort of make it stop. So I, I did see, I was going to therapy and I was, you know, um, I, like I said, I, I was aware that there was an issue, but I, I wasn't working appropriately on that issue. And after, you know, my husband and I got divorced, it was, it was very unceremonious. It was a very typical divorce in the sense that, you know, we just, made a decision not to be together and we went forward amicably. There was no real issue. There was no trouble in this divorce. There was nobody fighting or causing problems. It was just like, we're splitting. And that was the end of it. And once we did split, um, I went through a really challenging time of then, you know, I was at an age where I really wanted to have children. My clock was ticking You know, I thought I saw that window closing um, and I was now, for lack of a better term, desperate to, oh gosh, you know, I I don't, I want to have a kid. I want to have a family. I I, I need to make this right. So I started, you know, meeting guys. Um, I was never a flirt. I was never a girl that was like, you know, let me just like kind of play the field and see what's happening. I was always relationship minded uh, type of person. So I I wasn't really interested in just having fun and getting to know myself and sell my wild oats and woo. I was like, I gotta, I gotta look, I gotta look again. So I started meeting guys and just slinging and missing and slinging and missing. And then I met a guy who I felt madly in love with and we had a relationship that was on and off and up and down and back and forward um he was a marine and he struggled with ptsd and he had some he was going on deployment he had a lot of things that were uh, 
kind of obstacles for him. And I stayed in that relationship much longer than I should have. I, I just romanticized what we could be and what we were capable of. And we just sort of went back and forth. And because of that, I had a very, very, very hard time getting over him. It was very hard for me to move on. Um, when we finally said, you know, this isn't, we have to stop doing this and we need to go our separate ways. Um, every person that I met was compared to him. Everybody that I met, I tried to, you know, get somebody that looked like him or talked like him or, or smelled like him or something. Uh, I just wanted him. So it was a challenging time for me because I wasn't, I wasn't approaching meeting somebody with an open heart and open mind. I was trying to replace somebody that I loved and had lost. Um, and I, uh, the, the, something that he did that wasn't great was he was just very unfaithful to me. He was cheating on me constantly. And I, in my heart of hearts, I knew it. Um, and the next guy that I dated after that was blind. Um, he was blind and he was spinning at a studio at a spin studio that I was an instructor at. And, um, he was funny and he's just this really interesting guy. Um, and I thought, you know what? He is not, he's never going to be ogling anybody else. That's for sure. And I didn't, his blindness didn't, wasn't even really part of the story for me. It was really about who he was. And he just happened to be a blind guy. We dated for a while, but it just didn't, it didn't go anywhere that we were just on different, he was a partier. I wasn't, you know, we just weren't, we had different trajectories that we were on. And that's when I met my narc. Um, I think I was just really primed for it. I was putting myself out there. I was doing um, a fitness event outside of where I lived and I met him there and he was charming and he was tall and he looked at me and he paid attention to me. And I remember at that moment thinking like, wow, this is a, this is a gift, this person that, you know, now I'm not thinking about my ex anymore that I was madly in love with. I was just thinking about this guy. And um, he swooped in with such vigor. He made me feel all of the things that I'd been wanting to feel for all those years of my life. Um, I felt beautiful. I felt cared for. He was love bombing me to, it was like the definition if you pulled it out of a textbook. And for those of you listening that maybe aren't familiar with love bombing is it is coming on hard and fast. And they literally are becoming everything that you want them to be in a moment. They're making you feel as if you're the only thing that exists in the world, that you are the perfect everything to their you are the yin to their yang. You are, you, you are the only person for them. And at the time, it doesn't feel like a red flag because you think this is what love is. This is, this is love. I mean, this person loves me. They love me so much that they want to spend all of their time with me. But when you look back in perspective, you see that true, truly loving somebody is not something that happens like that. It's getting to know somebody. It's spending time with them. It's, it's wanting to learn about them and also wanting to share for yourself and realizing that love is messy and it's not perfect. <laughs> it is, you know, it is up and down it is back and forth. So it's not real love, but it feels like it when you're experiencing it. So very 
very quickly after meeting my NART, I got pregnant. So before that happens, when the whole love bombing is happening, you said you were seen, you know, obviously uh, a lot of affection, words, actions are taking place. Mm -hmm. What is the biggest hook for you as far as, you know, feeding into your self-esteem issues? Uh, Was there like one kind of event in there that you remember really stood out amongst all of the events where you're like, this is the guy? Um, Yes. So one of the things that my ex, uh, my Marine ex never did in public was hold my hand. And I remember that that was like the deal break. That, that's what I said when I finally let myself free of this person. I said, I want to be with somebody who is proud to be with me in public. I want somebody who wants to hold my hand. And I remember on one of our first dates walking down um, this avenue and he grabbed my hand and he held it the entire way. And it was, that was the deal sealer for me because it was the, the one thing that I asked for was somebody to want to be with me. And he really did. Um, so yeah, I, I do remember that moment of feeling like this person is proud to be with me. They are claiming me as theirs. They are walking proudly with my hand in theirs down this very busy street. And I feel wanted. I feel needed accepted accepted exactly your whole life you're an outsider in a way mm-hmm. and now here's someone who's accepting you most likely listening to a lot of the stuff that you've gone through yeah, yes i was i was holding my cards a little close to my chest at this point um because I didn't, I had, I've had a lot of living and I didn't, you know, having been married before and, you know, I, I mean, I'm not the typical individual in my performing background. I've lived in another country. I've toured the, the country four times on different national tours. I performed a lot. Um, you know, I was a rockette. I mean, like I've had a lot of experience. You were a rockette? <laughs> So I tend to keep all of those things kind of close to me for a while, just so that people don't know too much. You know what I mean? I want them to know me before they know anything else. Um, I know. Sorry. That was just, that was a a kicker that I just. (laughs) (laughs) Oh Oh, man, I'm speaking to a former Rockette. Who knew? Oh, no. Hardest job I ever did. Well, more on that later. But, um, yeah, so I felt accepted in that moment. I felt like all of a sudden I was everything that I had wanted for as many years as I could remember. And, the, you know, they always say, where was the, re- the first red flag? Like, what happened that started to make you think maybe something was off? And it was, we were not living in the same city. He had come to visit me and I was at work. I was working as a fitness instructor at a big gym in New York. And he messaged me about a business card that was on my refrigerator. And it was from a man. The business card was actually from a 
a, a personal training manager that had been trying to scout me as a personal trainer for a long time. And the only reason he wanted to do this was because I had a big following as a group fitness instructor. He saw money-making potential in me because if I, I already had this huge following, it'd be very easy for me to pers- be a personal trainer and get these same clients to now train with me. And it was very, you know, it was very much a business decision on his point. And I, and I got it. And I was, I was mulling it over. So I had his business card on my fridge. And I remember him calling me um, on my way home. And he said, whose card is this? And I was like, huh? He was in my apartment alone. And I said, I don't, what do you mean? He's like, there's a business card in the fridge from a man. And I was like, oh, what is, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that fitness manager that, you know, wanted to potentially hire me as a trainer. He's like, I don't believe you. Or there's something more here. Are you seeing this man? I was like, seeing him? No. What the? And I remember thinking in my head, this feels really odd. You know, he feels like he was getting very jealous out of of nothing, literally a business card, not even like a, you know, some people say, well, I saw a text and it looked suspect, or I read an email and I saw an inference of some sort. This was a, just a business card from a a man on my fridge. So I thought that that was a little odd, but I dismissed it. I said, oh, you know, he's just, he's just excited to be with me. And he just got a little jealous and that's okay. And Um, So the relationship was continuing on, I would say, fairly normally, and very quickly I got pregnant. And I was about 40 years old, so it was a miracle. I was excited about it, but I was also like, holy shit, that happened really fast. Oh, my goodness. This was not intended by on my part at all. It was completely an accident, but I'm not going to lie. It was a happy accident for me because at this point I didn't even know if it was so possible. So I told him that I, we, you know, we were living in different cities and I told him I had something important to tell him and he was coming up the next weekend. And I just not knowing how he was going to react or respond. I saw him and I just said, Hey, I have something I have to tell you. Um, I'm not sure how you're going to feel about it. And before I could say I'm pregnant, he said, I love you. I wanted to say it first. And I was like, Oh, um, Oh, Oh, and I was a little surprised by the proclamation because I think he maybe thought that that's what I was going to say. And then I told him, well, I'm pregnant. And his, he was excited. I mean, he was really thrilled about it. I think he was genuinely excited, really, really happy at the prospect. And I think I need to make a point at this point of the story because a lot of people wonder, myself included, did my did my narc mean to abuse me? Did he set out in this relationship with the intention of abusing me? And I'm going to say, no, I don't think that he did, at least not mine. And the reason that I feel that way about my relationship, and maybe others will feel that way as well, is that I think that the trouble with narcs is in addition to their own inflated ego, they have this unrealistic sense of how their relationship is going to play out. They see it as a romance novel. They see it as something out of a movie. You know, they've been watching movies and they see this incredibly romantic, you know, relationship that happens and they see themselves in it and they believe that that's the, the way that their relationship will happen and what they deserve. Now, we all know that that's impossible. So when things start to drift from that, 
they become angry and they become resentful. And I think that's honestly how my relationship started. And the reason that I'm bringing this up now is because shortly after I got pregnant, I had a miscarriage and that was not in the plan. Um, I had moved from my home in my city to be with him in his city. And um, as, as we were traveling down there, I was, I was having a miscarriage and it was, it was very hard. It was very upsetting for me. It was very upsetting for him, but this is where things really started to change. Um, what I first noticed was that he became kind of distant and he wasn't really very supportive and caring during the miscarriage. What he wanted to do was immediately fill it with something else rather than deal with the pain of losing this child. We were going to buy cats or we were going to get an animal and everything we're going to do. We're going to purchase something and we're, it's going to be great. And we're going to move on to something else. And what I was really thinking at that time was we haven't really processed the fact that I'm going through something physically awful. And there was a baby that we're losing. And that's a really sad thing. I'm somebody that tends to sit in grief so that I can get it over with. And my narc is not. He's somebody that wants to avoid grief by masking it with something else. Um, so he started to become distant. Um, he just seemed rather annoyed with me, you know, that I was still kind of going through this pain. He was moving in our belongings into this apartment with his, with his friend. And I wasn't really being a help at all. And the reason I wasn't is because I was in a lot of pain. And if anybody, you know, has the unfortunate, um, all is been unfortunate enough to experience miscarriage will understand that it's not just like a one-day thing this is something that goes on for can go on for several days and can make you feel pretty awful for a good chunk of time um so i had made the move i was down there we'd moved my stuff in and things were strained you know he just seemed distant and cold and and angry but still there sometimes still like in it in the way he was feeling but then just kind of not and at this point, you've, you've bought the love bombing works. You're hooked. You believe that this person really, really cares for you. And he must just be really struggling with the, the pain of losing this baby. This must just be what he's just going through something right now. And being on the empathetic side of me is thinking not about myself and my own pain, but rather, wow, you know, he's, he's really going through something. So I, I need to be I just, I need to be there for him. I just need to be calm and, and a good presence for him because he had this vision of his, of his life going a certain way. And I just threw a curveball at him. I, me, I threw the curveball. Not the fact that it, you know, wasn't anything to do with my fault, but that's the way you feel. So I threw, I threw a curveball. And I think that that really, that was the first moment where I started to see a completely different side of my narc. He was acting just not, I wouldn't say terribly towards me. He just, being cold and distant isn't, isn't being abusive. It's just being cold and distant. Um, he, was be, he was depressed. He was just kind of in on himself. And I remember like him going out to work and coming home and saying, you know, I, I spoke to my therapist today and I'm, I'm not even sure if I still want to be in this relationship anymore. I, I don't even know if I, if I want to be here. And I remember thinking like, Oh my God, like this is, wow. I, this is bigger than I thought it was. I mean, he's really, really, really struggling. Um, and he, I remember one incident where we were out at a gym 
that he had worked at previously. Um, we are both in the fitness industry. And there was a woman there, and there was banter between them that felt like, for some reason, I just was like, there it feels like there's something more to this relationship that I'm aware of. And I remember getting a really kind of sick feeling in the pit of my stomach as if I had possibly been cheated on by that point. Um, I never really knew much more about this woman other than just knowing that feeling, having experienced it with that ex that I spoke about, um, that Marine, and was really kind of keyed in to when somebody was doing that. So I remember thinking like, there could potentially be a fidelity issue going on here, but this is just a feeling and I'm going to push it away and I'm, I'm going to just ignore my gut at all, you know, at every turn and I'm just going to keep going. And things did keep going. And um, eventually I got pregnant again and I lost that baby as well. So on the second miscarriage was where things got really, really bad. Um, the second miscarriage that I had was far, far, far more painful than the first, far scarier because I was much further along in the pregnancy. And, um, I need to step back just a moment and say that he had planned an engagement, um, on the day that I found out I had lost the baby. So my whole family was in town and I remember getting out of the car after I had been at the doctor's office and hearing, you know, the unfortunate news that the baby, that the heartbeat was gone and seeing him and he hugged me and I thought, Oh my God, how odd. Like he's hugging. Wow. This, this is not him at all. And I realized then that my family was surprising me and that they were there. I didn't know that my family had come to town because as I mentioned, he was planning to propose to me and my family was down the street and I turned my head and saw them. And I was like, in that moment, I went, Oh, this is a show. He's hugging me because they're here. It's not because it's something that he wants to do. He's doing this in front of other people because by this time he had removed physical affection, all that, remember that handful thing that I had talked about was gone. There was no hugging. There was no telling me that I loved me. It was all gone. It was just either physical, like in the sense that like sexual, or it was nothing. So just to return, I went through that second miscarriage and it was the most painful thing I've ever been. And I've had a child since. <laughs> this was more painful than that. Um, and I was alone in my apartment with nobody. And I remember calling him or messaging him and he was so inconvenienced by me so annoyed that I was going through this pain and oh my god I have to deal with this and I was in such agony I was writhing and I I would get in the bathtub I would get out of the bathtub I would lie in the bed and I remember just lying and turning my body in such a way and for that moment this pain that I was feeling stopped and I didn't move I laid there for what must have been four or five hours. Um, I didn't get up to go to the bathroom. I just laid still because I felt relief. And when he walked in the door later that night, I was still in that position. And I was telling him, you know, I think, I think it's done, but I can't move because I'm in too much pain. And there was no tenderness. There was no coming in and saying, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry I wasn't here for you. Um, I, I wish I could have been here. Sorry, I had to work. There was no tenderness at all. There was just 
irritation over me and this inconvenience. So at this point, you've had two miscarriages, the second being more awful than the first. His behavior as far as being affectionate, holding your hand, um, outwardly showing things is gone. He's cold and distant in this time. He feels inconvenienced and annoyed by you. He's also at one point said out loud, I don't know if I even want to be in this relationship anymore. So here you are, 41-ish years old. You're looking at this person probably through the lens of what they once were. You still know exactly that you feel that these other things are happening. You're aware that these things are not right or not sitting right a little bit with you. So, you know, going forward from here, do you question like, should I even be in a relationship with this person anymore? Or are you are saying to yourself, he can still be the old guy. You know, I can bring that person back. The latter for sure. He can still be the old guy. And I think that this is, this is where the trouble lies for somebody like me is that you see the fault within yourself, not the fault of him. There was, at that time, there was no fault in him not being there for me. It was that I was making too much of this. Um, so what are all your faults that you're thinking you're seeing? Um, I'm thinking I need to be um, prettier. I need to dress up more. I need to not be so annoying. I need to not be so dramatic. Um, I need to get get myself up out of bed and deal with this in a better way than I am. Um, I just need to, I need to fix myself. I need to fix myself and then I'll be loved again. Um, and are these yeah. things he's saying to you or are these based on his actions, how you know he's probably um, thinking? It's based on his actions yeah. and what I believe he's thinking, not what he's saying at mm -hmm. this point. I mean, there is, pardon me, there is also a good amount of forgetting that I have done, um, probably for my own sanity. But I'm, there was abuse happening at this time. Mostly in the sense of, you know, mostly verbal abuse. And the way that it was occurring was I was working, we were both working for the same company. And we were in the process of opening um, some gyms in an, in an area. And these gyms, I was doing a job that I had never done before. I had been a fitness instructor, but I had never been a, a manager. Um, so a lot was being put on me. Um, and it, everything that I did reflected on him because he was like, the, he was higher up than me. So I remember him saying things like, that's stupid. Why would you do that? Um, aren't you, don't, don't you know how to do this? Like, and I remember saying to him like, no, I, I don't know how to do this. Like, I, I think, you know, that I don't know how to do this. I was an instructor and now I'm being moved into a managerial position. So there was the beginnings of verbal abuse at this point. Um, he made me feel inept. He made me feel stupid. He made me feel as if I was incapable by what he was saying to me. So he was acting distant and he was also saying things to make me feel like a moron. 
with the evolution of abuse, you know, everybody's story and everybody's journey is different. Um, so there isn't really one way that you can say, well, this is, you know, this is the way things happen. We know that there are certain stages of abuse and the way that things can escalate, but not necessarily that the way that everybody, as I said, everybody's story is different. Um, it, one, was, one last thing. Are you, do you question his behavior, his actions? Oddly, no. I don't. And why? Um, so this probably, this probably is some of the damage that was done to me as a child in the relationship that I had with my family, but I came from a, my mom is British and in British culture, you're, we don't, we just do like, she just does without question things. We just do things. So when someone asks me to do something, I do it. And when someone behaves a certain way, I don't question it. Um, and it was sort of like the man is in charge. The man is the leader of the household. The, what the man says goes. And anything other than that is weird or foreign. So I was in that belief that if this is the way he is, then it's not my place. I know that can make most people cringe to question it. It's not my place. I was very much in a subservient uh, position. You know, I was putting myself there. Were you afraid if you did say something that this was your last chance and that it could be taken away? Oh yeah. I was afraid this was my last chance at a decent relationship. I mean, my narc is, he's a very handsome guy. He's very handsome, very charismatic. Um, he is a, he is a covert narcissist. So he's not somebody that people would know as a narcissist by meeting him, but he is magnetic. And a lot of people like him. He's not somebody that likes to be in a room, you know, surrounded by people. He doesn't want attention at a party, but people will give him that, you know, they, they, he's extremely intelligent. He is very, he is compelling as a human. So that also, when you're dealing with somebody like that, even with the awareness, even though you might have awareness that that's the case, you still, they will get buy-in from you very easily. You will believe what they say and you will do what they tell you to do because they've got to be right. They have to be right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're, they're just too, he was, he was a salesman. That's what he did for a living before he got uh, into his last profession. So he was used to selling people on things. And I think that narcs are naturally excellent salespeople. Uh, he was a manager, you know, he, he was in all of the positions of what, a narcissist would want to do and he's compelling and when you hear him talk you you believe what he says um so right around this time we get an offer to move to the midwest to open another gym and my narc is typical in the sense that he's a rolling stone does not gather moss he does not like to he doesn't like for things to get stale. So he wants to constantly change. He's moved 15, 20 times through his life. Like he's constantly moving. He's constantly changing things. So when we got an offer to move out to the Midwest, it was like, yes, let's do it. And I was on board because I thought what we need is to get out of this environment. We need to get out of this 
terrible environment that this is going to bring change. It's going to bring newness. We're going to have a new way of life and everything is going to be different and better. So let's go. So we did. We moved out to the Midwest and that's where things started to go from mildly, maybe psychological. Some people might say mild, you know, your, your husband ignoring you through a uh, miscarriage is terrible, but by comparison, <laughs> friends, this was the mild part. So we move out um, to the Midwest, and he is the general manager of a fitness facility, and I am the um, fitness director. So I report directly underneath him. And the, one of the first things that he said to me when we got into this position was, just want to let you know that I will treat you much worse than all of my other staff. And the reason that I'm going to do this is so that it can never be claimed that you had preferential or favorable treatment because you, I was at that time, I was his fiance. So I was like, oh, okay. He's like, I'm going to treat you badly. And I said, okay, I, all right. And I'm thinking, yeah, we, we have to get on board with this because this is, this is how the way it has to be. I can't, there's no nepotism here. I am fair game, just like everybody else. But I said to him at that point, couldn't you treat me the same as everybody else? Maybe not necessarily worse. And he's like, no, 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 I have to treat you worse. So I said, okay, all right, all right. And at this point, you know, alarm bells were firing, but I was thinking like, no, this makes sense. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to put any kind of fears aside because that makes perfect sense. And this is logical and we're going to do this. Um, and we started pre-production on this fitness facility and very quickly, everything that I did was wrong. He, from what, from the way that I looked, from the, my outfit, from the pants that I had on, from the way that I was interviewing potential employees, you don't know what you're doing. He just constantly, every day that I came into work was a dread fest because I never felt smaller more inept, less capable than I had when I was around him. And the funny part is, is like, I am an uneducated woman. I have literally spent my entire life performing, (laughs) but I've always been told that I, by other people, that I was intelligent. I've always been told that you have a good head on your shoulders. You're able to get around. You're able to, you know, make sense of things. Uh, this is not me tooting my own horn. So please, I am not an Einstein of any sort. I have no <laughs> claims to superior intelligence, but I've always been told that I was smart. And this was the first time that I ever in my life felt truly stupid because everything that I did was wrong. And I was being told that by somebody that had a lot of experience in what he was doing. So therefore I was like, man, I suck. I suck. I'm terrible. So I really bought into that very early on was just how inept I was at my job. I also remember that creepy old feeling about other women starting to pop up. You know, people would come in to interview young personal trainers who were like, you know, just hot to trot, looking amazing half tops and tight pants. And I was a no slouch at this point. I mean, I was still like in really good shape and I was still, you know, like keeping myself up. 
And um, I just remember feeling very much like the, the eyes were wandering and that there was trouble brewing um, and that I was eventually probably going to be dealing with him possibly having, you know, an affair or something with somebody. It just, I just felt it, I felt it in my bones. Um, so the, the gym opens, we hire the staff. We're kind of going through our days of him making me feel idiotic, him not wanting, you know, displaying zero physical affection towards me in the terms of, he never said, I love you. He never hugged me. He never looked at me lovingly, all that handholding. It's just gone for years. Like I haven't seen that in a very long time. And he's making me feel dumb and he's making me feel worthless. And then he hires this yoga instructor. And the minute that I saw her, I was like, oh no, this, this, is, this is not, this is going to be bad. And he became very close with her as he has throughout the history of our relationship there have been women that he has been close with throughout the history of our relationship um who he texts all day who he has lots of conversations with who are various levels of um not i wouldn't say they're flying monkeys but they're narcissistic supply for sure they're giving him exactly what he needs and making him feel wonderful about himself loved and adored and all of those things that a narc needs so I meet this yoga instructor and I am, you know, seeing this relationship build with them. And then one day I just decided to check the phone bell just to see like, how much is he texting this individual? And in one weekend alone, he had texted her something like 500 times just in one weekend. Um, so I confronted him about it and I said, you know, I understand a friendship, but you're texting back and forth with this person 500 times. Like, that's crazy. And he blew on me. He called me nuts. He said that I was psycho. He wouldn't speak to me. He gave me, uh, we, I haven't experienced in the silent treatment up until this point in like little doses, but this was a massive one. He locked me out of the bedroom. He said, I was, you know, just utterly crazy and just made me feel insane for thinking such a thing. So I remember thinking like right at that point, like you've dealt with infidelity in the past. Like, this is you, this is on you. You know, what are you doing? Like looking at the phone bill, what are you doing snooping around? Like, you know, you have to stop. You're, you're, you're at it again. You're at it again. Like you just need to lay off and let him, you know, this is a friendship. This is what he does. And I'm, again, like alarm bells are going off and I'm, I'm not listening to any of them. I'm just shutting them down right and left. So shortly after that time, he decides to take a trip to DC um, to meet up with a friend of his, uh, his best friend. And while he's there, I'm just like grasping at the straws of our relationship. Like I feel that he's got, he's, you know, been texting this woman a ton He's feeling distant. He, he looks distant. He doesn't, he's like, just not into me at all. And rather than just being like, fuck this noise, like, the, you know, I'll just, I'll get out of here. I'm trying harder and harder and harder to be what he wants me to be and to get him to see the other side and to try to like get him back. So um, I'm checking the phone bill while he's away and I'm seeing he's texting and calling. And all of a sudden I see this other individual that he's calling and texting a ton 
And I, I feel bad for looking at these phone records, by the way. Like, I still feel a lot of shame about that. I feel like if trust is not in a relationship, then, like, what is there? Um, however, I discovered that he is, this is a woman who I had had a feeling about that he was uh, having an affair with. This was a different girl than the yoga lady. <laughs> so now we have another person that he had been fooling around with. Then, as he's away, uh, he gets back. I confront it with him, and we have a worse blow up than the first one. This one is, I'm shipping you back to New York. Nothing is going on. You're fucking crazy. You psycho. Like, what the fuck? How dare you? Because I, I think, oh, I had told him when he got back, I looked at his phone, and I saw, you know, that, that there are messages. And he's like, don't you ever go through my fucking phone again, you fucking crazy bitch. And... Uh, he goes to the gym. He's like, not dealing with you, you know? And, and the first thing that I feel is shame. Again, I feel shame. Like, oh my God, I invaded his privacy. This is terrible. Um, while he's doing that, I get a phone call from somebody that knew him in DC and said, I don't know how to tell you this, but a friend of mine just called me and said that she slept with your fiance while he was visiting in DC. And I said, really? And she said, yep, it happened more than one time. So at this point, he had thrown, you know, blew up at me. He went to the gym. He was at work. And I just drove over there. And I went into his office and I said, you know, you blew up at me this morning for invading your privacy and denying everything. And I just got a phone call from somebody in uh, D.C. that says that you slept with this, this woman. And immediately he it first denied it and then admitted it. And then the love bombing happened again. That was my second dose of the love bombing. So he um, apologized. He said, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. And he just swooped in and he loved me so much. And this was amazing for our relationship and everything was so great and wonderful. And I felt that dose of what I had seen the very first time that I met him. So the love bombing really worked because I was very vulnerable. I was really sad about him having this affair. So I was all too ready for him to swoop back in and hoover me back. And in a um, lot of cases for people, what uh, people don't understand who are not in these situations is a lot of the time, you know, the feeling that you get and it's an addictive feeling. And, you know, I always bring this back to a heroin or something along those lines is Sometimes you feel the only thing that can fix the pain is the thing that hurts you most. So if you're a drug addict and the heroin is what's killing you, well, when you get that heroin fix again, you're going to feel good for a certain amount of time before it starts wearing away. And right here with you, what has happened is the thing that's hurting you the most. All of a sudden, you get your love bombing heroin fix here. And once again, you think that this is something that can work, that this is a life that you want. Yeah. Um, So it is around this time when he's love bombing me back um, after I discover this affair that he starts using steroids. And the steroids are um, mostly for the purposes of building bigger muscles. You know, he, a friend of him is using them and, and he starts using steroids. And I remember thinking at that point, like, aren't steroids bad in the sense that they can cause people to get ragey and angry and 
I remember like Roy Rage, you know, we all know it. We've heard Roy Rage. And I remember thinking kind of, I was a little bit worried about the fact that this was being introduced, but in the typical, as I mentioned before, don't speak up, go with it, go with it, you know, don't question authority. Um, I said, okay, um, if that's what you want to do, I'm a little concerned about your health. Um, I think it would be great if you could maybe see a doctor that was cool with this um, along the way, just to make sure that you're not hurting yourself. Um, and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I know what I'm doing. It's going to be fine. So he started using um, the steroids and he was on cycle. And when he was on cycle, there were certain things that would happen. The first is he became very affectionate. He would say like, I love you. He was saying things that he hadn't said before, but in a long time, not since the beginning of our relationship. Um, he would be physically affectionate with me. I felt loved. I felt wanted. I felt all these things. But at the same time, he was also becoming very increasingly jealous. So I can give an example. At this point in our relationship, I am hev- heavily working on my fertility because we're try- I'm trying to have a child. And now I'm older and now things are not, I'm not getting pregnant. So I'm going to acupuncture every week. And all of a sudden he was like, I don't believe you that you're going to acupuncture. I think you're going to see a man. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to acupuncture. And he's like, well, I, I really don't, I, I'm really uncomfortable with this. And I thought, is this steroid? Like, what is this all of a sudden? Maybe it's just steroids. And as people that are in these sorts of relationships know, we mistake this for he's really into me. Like he really loves me so much that he needs to be around me. And for somebody that was just through what I went through, where you felt like you were losing your relationship to other women and he was distant, this feels like gold. It feels warm. It feels like a fuzzy bear hug. So I was all about it. So I said, you know what? Why don't you just, just come with me and you can see where I'm going. And he did. He got in the car and he was like, I just, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just feel so paranoid that you're not doing what you're saying you're doing. And he came with me to the appointment and he would say that frequently. And this was the point in, in the relationship where he started to become paranoid about previous relationships too. I wasn't allowed to speak of them. I wasn't allowed to have any mention of the fact that I had been in any relationship prior to this. If I did, he became very, very upset to the point where it bothered me because it felt odd you know he was hyper jealous of men that I had been with before him so I'm kind of trapped in it now because I'm believing that this is love I'm believing that he cares about me and I'm getting more and more of these sorts of paranoid crazy kind of behaviors um he's also simultaneously um drinking at this point and the drinking is starting to pick up, you know, where he's really passionate about different beers and he's drinking a lot and his behavior is changing a little bit when he's drinking. Um, so I wouldn't say that I felt scared at this point, but I definitely noticed that this didn't feel like any of the relationships that I had been in before. I felt as if I was in kind of like a fun house, like things didn't weren't as they appeared, things were changing and stuff was starting to feel strange. Um, as we're bumbling along here, we make the decision to have a child through IVF, which we do and are successful. And we have a child, um, 
while we were living in the Midwest. And about, um, I would say, uh, I don't know, she was probably about six months old. We started to say, you know, this isn't our home. We should be back where our family is. Like, we should try to see if we can get back to the East Coast. The gym was starting to become boring. Like, it was no longer fun or exciting to work there. So we decided that we were going to try to make an effort to move back to the East Coast. But we needed a job to do that. And I had been, the, the blind man that I had mentioned previously that I had dated is kind of a key player now. Um we stayed friends, he and I, after our relationship ended. And we actually became very good friends to the point where we really enjoy talking to each other. He's very funny. We have fun. There's no, there are no lingering romantic feelings between either of us, but we just really, we just like each other. So we love to chat on the phone and we have a great time. So I had been in contact with him, but I chose not to tell my narc that we had a relationship because of the way he was behaving about my previous relationships, because he was starting to act really funny about that. Um, but in one of our conversations, he mentioned to me, Hey, you know, I have a gym. He was a wealthy guy. And he said, I have a gym in New York that we're looking to completely re we, we we're looking for a new um, CEO. Basically we want somebody to completely take this thing over. And I was like, well, I got just the guy. I said, I, my husband would do it. He's like, you think he would? And I said, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we're looking to get out of here and that sounds like a good opportunity. So without telling him about our relationship past, I told my husband about the opportunity. Um, sorry, I said it fiance at one point. We got married at some point in here. So there was a wedding that occurred. It was fairly uneventful. People came, we had cake, we moved on. We're married at this point. Um, I told him about it and he immediately became intrigued because he loved New York and he loved this opportunity, the thought of this opportunity. So things kind of moved along and they were slow at first, but then it started to appear as if he was going to get hired for this job. And he did. He got hired to take over this gym in New York. So we moved, we moved back to New York. Um, but, and this was a point to another kind of, a pivotal point he said i think you should go ahead i think that you should go ahead i'm going to close up shop here with the gym but you go ahead and get us set up there in new york um when our baby i also need to step back a second and say when our baby was born um and she was little it was 100 percent me i was waking up the multiple times and i feed her it was on me he really didn't do that at all. Now, I was breastfeeding, so I understand that there's limitations for a man. However, you can pump, and there are bottles, and there are other things that you can do. Um, but he wasn't really involved much in the beginning part of her life, in the sense that he didn't wake up at night. It was all on me, all the time. And I was still working at the gym, and I was still trying to train. So it was a lot that I was taking on at this point. Um, so he said, why don't you go ahead? and I will meet you there. And if this is the point, too, where cocaine first makes its appearance in our relationship, he had mentioned it prior. There was somebody that he knew that was selling it, and 
I said, you know, I, I really am not a fan of that at all. I'm not a drug user. I'm not a drinker. I barely, I'll drink a glass of wine, maybe. Um, but drugs have always been something that have scared me. I'm a nerd when it comes to that thing. So it's not that I judge anyone else that does it, but I won't lie when I say if somebody's doing it around me, I don't, I, what is it, what, how are you going to behave? Like, what's this going to be like for you? Like, how, what are we going to experience? Um, so he starts using it and initially it seems as if it's great you know it kind of boosts his mood and he's in a good mood and you know he's dealing with the fact that our child is not really attaching to him very much like when when I'm away she's screaming and crying and he's just like he's just over it most of the time so I find that when he uses this um he's you know a kind of a a lighter lighter hearted guy so at first i'm like well, maybe, i don't know maybe there's something to this this is not so bad now in addition to um the drinking that i had mentioned previously about you know starting to drink beer we also have marijuana that's entered the picture we also now have the steroids that he's still using and now we've got coke coming in as well so yeah there's there's a there's a lot happening and then there's that there's the coke that's happening as well and um he's telling me to go ahead you know, to New York. And I mentioned to him a few times, you know, we talked about the affair that I found out that happened when he was in DC, but there was also that other woman that he had called a whole bunch of times in between there. And I had said to him many times, like, I, I don't like her at the gym and I don't like, you know, you, you hurt me with that. I don't want to see this woman, you're hanging out with her or anything. So um, I had made that clear to him. I go ahead to New York. He stays behind and right before I left, um, there's this thing you can have on your iPhone called Find My Phone or Friends, like it's a tracking, so you can like share with your friends, you can see your friends' locations. And I had mentioned it, um, I was in uh, a co-worker's office, somebody that he, another woman that he was close with at the gym, and she's like, oh yeah, we should look up one of our employees on this Find Your Phone, you know, tracker app and see if they're really sick or if they're out, you know, like out of the bar. I was like, oh, what's that? And he immediately got really tense. Like I could see that he was annoyed that she was talking about it in front of him. And he's, she's like, oh yeah, it's a tractor. Like you guys can see where each other, where, where you are. And he like became stiff and I picked up on it. I was like, oh, he doesn't want me to know where he is. Okay. All right. I, I think that just happened, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm not going to read into anything. Maybe he was just annoyed in general. So that was an important piece but anyway more important pieces we get back to me in new york and it's the day that he is supposed to be arriving he's coming from the midwest he's got our car he's driving he's moving and i get a call and it's about two o'clock in the morning and he's like i'm so sorry i'm so sorry i'm i'm so sorry i i'm a bad i'm a bad person and i said what what happened what is it he's like i just got arrested i got pulled over for having um, cocaine in the car and i'm being detained and i said you were driving with co- were you driving you were doing coke while you were driving he's like what no i i, I was doing it but i stopped i wasn't well i was trying to keep myself awake i just wanted to get there fast so our first the thing that happens on him coming here is that he gets arrested for cocaine possession and it's charged with a felony so 
my natural instinct is just to say, you know, everything's going to be okay. It's all going to be fine. Like, just get here. We'll work through this. We'll figure it out. I understand, you know, this can happen. It wasn't, I'm even thinking like, this isn't your fault. Like, we'll, we'll get through this. And now in hindsight, when I look back at it, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, that's a huge thing to do to be driving on cocaine. Like, you could forget the fact that he could kill himself and he could kill a bunch of people. Like, that's a terrible thing to do to be driving like that. Um, so he arrives and now his trip has been tainted because we're dealing with him potentially going to prison. I mean, this is a huge thing to, you know, and they're not taking this lightly in the Midwest either. Like wherever they were, this was like the major, major, major deal. So in addition to that, we now have this huge financial burden because we have to hire a lawyer and we've got to try to get this, you know, corrected on his record, this whole other issue. Um, and when he gets there, I'm starting to feel these feelings again of, of like, just not, I, I feel like something's wrong. And I find myself like feeling like I'm investigating again. I've got this little child and I just feel like something is off in terms of his fidelity. Um, through a roundabout way and not to like bog us down with too many details, I find out um, that he has in fact been hanging out with that woman uh, that he had called a bunch of times and that as a matter of fact he had left the party that his farewell party for the gym in Kansas City to go and hang out with her and that cocaine uh, they had been making out in a bar apparently and this cocaine that he was using he was using with her and had driven to me straight from being with her basically I found this out many years later, but this is what he had done. So I was paying now physically, emotionally, and financially for this huge mistake. And as a result of this, whatever the fuck he was doing when he was in KC. Um, when he gets to New York, you know, here's now another change where you think, all right, we're changing locations. Things are going to be better. Things are going to be great. And this is where things really started to change. And it wasn't now just me being concerned about fidelity it was me now being concerned about him him actually really abusing me um it would be angry you know he would come home and he'd be super angry he would be stressed out from his job he would be putting me down and saying you know you have to get off your ass and do something like you've got to like make some money um i was teaching fitness classes and he was annoyed that i was up too early and home too late like he just everything that i did upset him um and we were in an apartment that my parents owned it was a small space we were kind of on top of each other um so we just i'm thinking at that point you know we, we just need to move now mind you i don't know about this fidelity that i this infidelity that i just talked about quite yet this is something that i'll discover later um but we're, I decided, you know, it's, it's the apartment's fault. We have to get out of here. So we start moving to different apartments in New York. We moved once, we moved twice, and then we end up in this apartment on the Upper West Side. Now, he is regularly using cocaine. He is constantly aggressive. He has now been searching through my phone. He's been claiming that I'm um, cheating on him when I'm not. He says to me at one point when we're up late at night and he had been drinking and using drugs um, that he would never feel truly complete until he had killed someone. 
And I remember in that moment thinking like, oh my God, what an incredibly horrible thing to say. And he turned to me and said, you know, and as my sidekick or as my partner, I expect you to be there mopping up the blood. He's like, if you're not going to do that, I need to know that right now. I need to know where you stand. And at this point, I started to become slightly fearful of him. And I just started agreeing. I thought, yeah, 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 no, uh, yeah, of course I, I would, I'm going to do that. Uh, yeah, I'm going to mop up the blood. And I mostly said it just because I thought he was either out of his tree or just super drunk or high or just not making sense. So I agreed that I would be there. And things then started to step off a ledge. Um, I had gotten a job exactly what he wanted me to do it was a full-time job and I was working he didn't like the place that I was working for various reasons but he would accuse me of affairs with men in the gym and just like like just generally like just a lot of accusations during our days most of the days were spent with him just angry you know um, making me feel stupid more of the same of what it was before um and then when we get to this apartment on the Upper West Side, um, we have been hanging out with friends of this guy, the blind guy, this guy. Um, and I was concerned at this point that he was going to find out that he and I had had a relationship in the past and that this was going to be a tipping point for him. And lo and behold, after a night uh, at a concert, he um, decides that he wants to go out and party more, even though I'm begging him to come home with me. He goes out and parties with these mutual friends and learns that, in fact, I had had a relationship with this guy. What ensues then is him, he comes back and he starts screaming at me about, like, I'm a liar and I'm disgusting and that he finds this person disgusting and how could I be with such a disgusting person and I'd be sickened by me and I'm just like the grossest thing ever for having been with this guy um he keeps graphically describing potential sexual encounters of how things went between us things that we might have done with each other um all of this is happening in text format so he's texting me all of these ideas and scenarios um it was around this time that we had planned to have like a sort of like a toddler fun time at the gym that he was working at we were going to run a projector uh we had had our kids birthday party there we rented a bouncy house you know a couple months before that and it seemed like a great idea to have them you know do this big event at the gym so i proceed with it and I guess I hadn't specifically said to him, can we still do this? Because it was his idea. So I just was sort of going forward with the idea. And we get near the day and he said, um, what the, f like, what the fuck are you doing? You're going to use the gym? And I said, yeah, yeah. I, I thought we had discussed this, you know, for our kid. And we're going to do this, this big party and this movie and this bouncy house. And he's like, you're going to do this without me. He's like, you're going to go and you're going to make the biggest ass out of yourself. I haven't agreed to this. I'm not going to help you at all, but you're going to go there by yourself and you're going to throw this, this big party and you're going to, you know, just, you're going to fuck it up and you're going to be uh, ridiculous, basically. So what I'm kind of cutting through at this point, which I think I need to make really clear, is that our day-to-day -day life at this point 
is absolutely horrible. From morning to night, he is finding different ways to gaslight me and abuse me. Um, by gaslighting, examples would be like him saying um, that, uh, I don't know, that we're, supposed, we're going out to um, lunch and we're going to go out and we're going to have this great time and we're going to go out and do, you know, we're going to go out to lunch and we're going to have an awesome time having this, this lunch in, in the city. But he would want me to make a plan to have this lunch. So I would try to think like, okay, well, we're going to go to this restaurant and then we'll go here, you know, to this store. And he would, my, my plan would never be good enough. So he would say like, I want us to go out and have a good time. But as soon as we tried to do that, everything was my fault because the restaurant, the line was too long. And then the store didn't have the right merchandise. So it always started with him making a suggestion asking me to follow through with it but then when I did it it was wrong and that literally was was like every time we went out it felt like I want you to do this thing but I'm gonna and then eventually I'm gonna sabotage but make it feel horrible so getting back to this day I'm going to this gym I'm going to do this toddler party um he is so angry at me he's literally spitting fire we I go to the gym by myself with my daughter in tow, carrying this huge bag of stuff because I've got a computer and all this other things that I need to do to make this thing happen. And the whole time that I'm on my way, I'm terrified because he's so angry and he's been using, you know, he's been using Coke, he's been drinking a ton and he's having these rage outbursts that are terrifying. I get to the gym, I set everything up. I'm having a little bit of difficulty. I let him know. He's like, no, I have to fucking come down there and help you. I'm not going to help you. And I was like, never mind. I'll take care of it. And he shows up at one point just to kind of plug something in and then angrily leaves right away. So I'm there. And I, at this point, all I want to do is cry because I feel so often about how angry he is with me and that I have to do this party with my two-year-old child and just everything feels absolutely terrible and the first person arrives and I'm there and I hug her and I'm like hey you know it's so good to see you and then all of a sudden I get a text message and it said um boy you seem like you're just fine you seem like you're in a great mood hugging so-and-so and I thought how did you know that oh my oh my god he's watching me on the cameras at the gym he's looking at me so as people came, he would report back to me through text message about like my movements and whether or not like you seem happy, what are you saying to this person, how are you like behaving around this individual, and it's getting scarier and scarier because I'm being stalked at this point. And I know like you may listen to this and think like, well, you know, he's just looking at her on a camera. It was much more sinister than that. It was him. Ex- claiming that I was behaving a certain way and then understanding the mood. He had a tracker on my phone, so he knew everywhere that I went. That Find Your Friends app ended up being my worst enemy because he knew my every move. Um, and then he started claiming that I was behaving inappropriately with some of the, the men at the party. And there were certain points when I was at this party that I wanted to say, help me to some of the people that were there. I was in such a terrorized state in my life that I just wanted to ask um, somebody for help that I didn't think I could keep doing this and that I felt scared. Um, 
I finally end the party and I'm cleaning ferociously because I'm terrified to leave anything a mess in the gym. I'm cleaning and cleaning and cleaning and cleaning. And he's, you know, he's got message after message after hateful message coming in. You know, I see what you're doing. I know what you're up to. You know, you better, you better get back here. You better do this. You better do that. I get out of the gym. I have my daughter. We're in a cab uptown. I feel exhausted from this whole day, you know, trying to make this projector work and knowing that I had annoyed him. And when I get home, he's out of his tree. He's drunk and he is ready. Like he's ready for whatever. Um, he quickly sends me a photo of his hand with a bunch of pills in it. And he said, I just took all of these. And if you call anybody, you are going to be in huge trouble. If you tell anyone or call anybody, let anybody know you're going to be in you know, it's the the threats that he made were always very vague, but they were always, you know, terrifying as if like I was going to I was going to be just hammered for, for letting anybody know. So I sat there for a while. This was not the first suicide attempt that he had made in his life. He had done this prior. Um, and. I just didn't know what to do. I had my daughter sleeping in the other room and I thought if he has taken all of these pills and he does die, I'll have to explain to my daughter someday that he alerted me to that and I did nothing or he's bluffing and I'm just supposed to sit here and, you know, not do anything. You were, you you were damned if you did damned if you were, if you did not in this situation. There, you, you, so. you were going to get it either. You don't even care about me to make a call to, you know, the police or the ambulance or the other side. You went against everything I told you to do. You don't listen to me. I, I yeah. mean, what a position to be put in right there. Yeah, it was, it's terrible and it's terrifying because, you know, I can sit here calmly and talk about it now, but at the time he's raging. I can hear him pacing. He's angry. He looks angry. He said to me, I will never feel truly whole until I kill someone. So, you know, he's already had moments where he has let me know what he's capable of. But so let, I'm so sitting for, there. For, well, for one second right here, I just want to say the relationship you entered, you could never have imagined in a million years that this is where it would go. Steroids, Cocaine, uh, suicide attempts, a stalking, gaslighting, everything under the sun. He, the way he is, is a 180 to another degree here as far as, you know, the behavior of killing himself as well at the same time and not just you. And then you yourself of what you're dealing with here, uh, where you are, uh, to understand how you even got there. Uh, I mean, it's just hard to, to imagine like you, you, if, if the, the ocean met the land at a certain point, it, it's now receded <laughs> like 10 miles away. It just, has to be um, uh, isolating. Exactly. That's all you want to do is get back to that place. And because you have no control in the situation, 
you feel as if you have you yourself have all the control. If I can change my behavior, if I can be prettier, if I can be funnier, if I can say witty things, if I can be smarter, I will get that back. It's on me because this is so insane and so crazy that it has to be on me. So you find yourself doing anything that you can to get back to where you were. Um, I locked myself in my room with my daughter. Um, I'd spent the night with him pounding on the door, screaming at me, um, open the fucking door, um, not knowing what was on the other side. And this was not the first night that this had happened. I had spent many a night curled up in my daughter's bed with her while she, I could hear him pacing. I would hear him upstairs coming down the stairs and I would lock the door and I'd curl up with her and I would just freeze and shake because I didn't know what he was doing, what he was, you know, trying to do. Um, I locked myself in my room with my daughter and I started to gather clothing and I started thinking, I'll get out now and I'll go, I'll grab her and I'll go down the stairs. And this is in the middle of New York City. So you're not, you've got plenty of people around. And as soon as I did that, I walked to the door and started to turn the knob and I heard him start to thump down the stairs. So I ran back to the room as quickly and quietly as I could and locked the door again. And there I stayed until the morning. Um, and again, as I say, this is only one episode. This one stands out because it was longer and it had, you know, stalking and stuff at the gym and him watching me on the camera. But this had happened several times. In the morning, I had had enough. You know, I felt like my job, I couldn't, I couldn't get through a fitness class. If I didn't respond to a text quickly enough, there would be hell to pay. There'd be accusations. You know, he was so good at controlling me through fear and terror that I would do whatever he needed just simply to avoid any sort of conflict at home. I was just eternally terrified. So I walked downstairs in the morning and I go straight into the police station. And I said, um, I'm very concerned um, for my husband. I believe that he may have taken some pills. I showed them the photo. And I was, again, terrified. I didn't want them to do anything. I just wanted them to know. But I, for some reason, I didn't want them to act. I was afraid. I thought, what if they do act? So they said, ma'am, this is out of your hands now. And in ours, we have a, somebody who's a danger to themselves. And unfortunately, we're going to have to you know, go upstairs. And if you don't show us where he is, then you're going to be with trouble as well. So you're going to need to take us there. So I cried myself all the way up the stairs and I opened the apartment door. I ran into my daughter's room and I just hid under the covers and I put my hands over my ears and I hummed as loudly as I could so that I couldn't hear anything. Um, and I had said to the police officer, just please come knock on the door once everything is, once, you know, he's out. So she knocked and she said, ma'am, uh, we're taking him down. Um, we're going to, you know, observe them. You have a few hours. My suggestion is, is you get out of here because we don't know what's necessarily going to, how he's going to react when he gets back. And at this point, she doesn't know anything. She just knows that this is a suicide attempt. So I get out of the room. I grab my daughter. I start packing stuff in the bat and a bag. And all of a sudden I hear, I see you. I see what you're doing. And it's him. It's his voice. And I think, what the fuck? And he's on the Alexa from his phone, from the police car on the Alexa talking to me through and watching me. 
So I duck behind a corner and I crawl across the floor and I unplug it. And then as soon as I unplug it, he starts angrily texting me. You unplug the Alexa. What the fuck? You don't even care about me. You know, I didn't even see you. You didn't even see me out. You know, you know, I'm trying to kill myself and you, you can't even give me the decency of saying goodbye. You're a horrible person. You're a miserable bitch. Um, and I get out of the apartment. And the first thing that starts happening is, is his, his sister is calling me and she's saying, where we have been trying to get a hold of you. Where are you? My brother tried to kill himself and no one can get a hold of you. And I said, um, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but your brother has been abusing me for many years. And this was a suicide attempt that happened after. And I gave her a whole bunch of, you know, information and said, he's done this. He's done that. He's done the other. And she's like, oh, it all makes perfect sense now. This is why you haven't been reaching out to us. This is why you don't talk to us. I said, yeah, I'm not allowed to speak to you. Um, if I speak to you, it's viewed as, you know, what are you talking to my family about? What are you guys talking about? So I've always had very limited access from the ability to talk to his family. So um, I told her everything. Um, then the hospital called and they had a few questions and I told them as well. And I said, you know, this is not what it looks like. This is what's going on. And they briefly considered holding him, but then released him. And when they released him, he was super apologetic and another love bombing came my way. This was an extreme apology, but at the same time, he was very upset with me for putting him in there. He was like, you couldn't, you didn't have to do that. All I was doing was crying out for attention. You could have easily just come upstairs. You could have been with me that night. You chose to turn me in. You sicked the cops on me, you know? I felt really, really badly about it, even though I shouldn't have, because what I did was what I should have done. You know, um, anybody that's threatening to kill themselves needs help. Um, but I got sucked back in. Um, and that was uh, then the point where I thought everything will get better now. You know, we've had this episode. It's going to change. We're going to improve. Everything is going to get better. And it didn't. Um, it kind of continued on the same way. Um, he would typically text his abuse. He would say things like, you know, he would call me stupid. He would call me all kinds of names. He would just make me feel basically like a worthless person. At one point, his family had visited us. And it was during the holidays. And we were having uh, what I thought was a wonderful time. You know, I was so happy that they were there. His mother is a huge Christmas lover and of all things holiday. And there's no better place to be for the holidays than in New York. They really know how to do it up. Um, but after she left, a couple of days later, I got a phone call and she said, um, and this is not a woman that would call me. You know, she, we, we have a nice relationship, but she's not like, we're not chatty on the phone. And she said, um, I just wanted to sincerely apologize for my son's treatment of you. And I was like, huh? And she's like, for how horribly he treated you. And I said, oh, I, I'm real. Oh, I didn't think, because at that point, I thought things were fine. I really thought they were fine. And she said, he undermines you. He treats you like garbage. I, I am so sorry. She's like, this is not how, who I raised. This is not the person that I raised. And I just want you to know how truly, truly sorry I am for his behavior. And that was the first time that anybody from the outside had said, you know, I see that something's wrong. So after the love bombing from this episode of the suicide, 
we stayed in that apartment and things continue to escalate. Um, he would drink. And at one point he was, um, we were upstairs. Um, we were in the bedroom and our daughter was up there and, um, I was laying, she was laying between us and he was so angry again over my um, relationship with this guy that I had seen the blind guy that he grabbed my crotch. Pardon me, it's about to be graphic, folks. And he said, his name, we'll call him Stu. Stu has been here. And this will forever be less special as a result. You have been violated. And he was grabbing me hard um, on my crotch. And I said, more out of desperation and fear, take your hands off of me or please get off of me. And he said, uh, and this was a typical move, like our relationship will never be the same now that you said that. You can never take those words back. And that was around the time that he started using divorce threat as a tactic. Um, I'll divorce you. I'll leave you. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to divorce you. Now, most people would probably think, good get out, get away from me. But I was so, and not so much now, but at the time was so um, Stockholm. I had such bad Stockholm syndrome and such trauma bonding that I was terrified for him to go anywhere. So him leaving me was the worst possible thing that could happen. That love bombing was so strong and feeling that togetherness and that we're the only two that exist in this world was so amazing that I was terrified to lose it. Um, so that's the beginning of when sexual abuse started to happen. Um, if I didn't do or, you know, do what he needed me to do at the time, he was going to take it anyway. He would even say so much like, uh, if I was asleep and he wanted to have sex with me, he told me, if you say no, I will rape said that more than once. So it was like my body was his. And that was that. And whether I wanted to or not, um, he was going to have his way. So, and after every violent episode with him, and at this point, nothing is, and you could say that is physical abuse at this point, because he has been grabbing me. He used to do this thing where he would put his fist underneath my back while I was sleeping. He kind of tugged on my hair a little bit, knocked me on the top of my head. Um, he would gaslight me. This is a really interesting way of gaslighting. We would lie in bed and he would pinch me slowly and just sort of like pinch me just a little bit, pinch and pinch. And then he'd kind of poke me, poke me. And I would say, please stop doing that. I, I really don't like that. And he'd pinch harder and he'd poke and poke again. And I would peg, I'd say, again, please, please, please don't, do, you know, please don't do that. I really don't like it. And he would keep at it just slowly, just poking and pinching and grabbing me until I would blow up and I would start wailing on him with pillows but i would say stop 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 it was like a flip a switch flipped and i would scream like stop it stop stop it and he would say so calmly you're such a fucking psycho look at you look at your behavior what the fuck is wrong with you i'm just playing you're acting like a maniac and that was an example of gaslighting because you know it's not you're not, you know what you're doing. He was methodically trying to get me to react. And that's basically been the basis of our relationship. It's reactive abuse. Yes, exactly. Reactive abuse, which I learned the term for um, and have discovered that I was absolutely doing that, you know, 
at points in our relationship. So we've had this huge blow up. We've had all kinds of craziness in this apartment. We've had this, you know, stalking, these texts, the sexual abuse, and then COVID hits. <clears throat> and we have to get, we get out of New York. We come down to the South to his family farm. And here's another move. And here's another opportunity. And I think things are going to change. Everything's going to be better. We're going to be down here. We're going to be, um, you know, back home with his family and everything's going to be great. So we're here for a time. Um, and everything was okay, but then we needed a, uh, a business loan and not to get too into this, but my, my, my mother has a business. I am, um, an owner in this business for tax reasons and it's all legit. Nothing is being done in, you know, illegitimately here, but, um, on paper, it looks like I'm much wealthier than I am. And I have all of this income that comes in from this business. And whenever I try to do anything, I'm always asked, you know, about the business. I'm always questioned about it. So we were trying to get a loan during COVID and the business was on my, you know, tax return. And I, we had to get me to sign off on it. And it caused a, a rift with my family where they didn't, it basically meant my mother had to put her business up as collateral in order for me to sign this document. I wasn't comfortable with it. They weren't comfortable with it. They had also said at this point, we don't like the way he's treating you. They were aware that abuse was happening. They were very, very hesitant for me to get involved in any business with him. So they were not willing to be so loose with signing off on this. He lost his mind. And he basically said that my family was the devil, that he's, you know, he hated them, that they will die before they'll ever see my daughter again that um, they're the worst, you know, it just like went off and my family was horrible and horrible, horrible people for doing what they did. That was the beginning of him isolating me from that because after that incident occurred during COVID, I had, was not allowed to have any contact with them. Um, now I say not allowed and you say, well, you know, I could call them if I wanted. He wasn't like physically restraining me from doing that. But if I were to call them or message them, how is your piece of shit family? What are those fucking losers up to? Family's a bunch of fucking assholes. That's what I had to deal with if I chose to make that call. If I wanted my daughter to speak to them, he would say beforehand, remember, they're a bunch of fucking losers before you talk to them, right? You know they're assholes, right? So he was saying that to her, too. So I didn't want to put her through me, And I certainly didn't want to go through it. So I just chose to fall in line and not communicate with them. So now I'm estranged from my family. Um, he's already made it clear through his behavior about me texting or calling anybody that he has beliefs that I'm having an affair, which I absolutely am not. Um, so now I'm separating myself from friends. So I've isolated myself from talking to anybody just for fear. And at this point, he starts kicking up drinking quite a bit more because the drugs aren't available here. So he's drinking and he's saying, you know, I think um, I should purchase some guns while I'm down here. Let's get some guns. I want to get a crossbow, I'm gonna get a gun, I'm going to get a hunting knife. So he does. And we basically have this cabinet full of weaponry. We even have my dad's old service revolver. We've got guns on top of guns, on top of knives, on top of crossbows, on top of axes. I mean, literally everything that you can think of sitting in this closet. 
and he um, is drinking more at night, feeling a strain, as we all are, COVID and everything that that involves. And we go out one night with, I think we had a gun in the car. I don't even remember, but we're driving around our field and he's particularly angry. My daughter is, you know, close with me and she is saying, you know, that she seems to only ever want mommy most of the time, as a lot of kids do with their moms. And we're out and he's like, let's go for a drive around the field. And I was like, I think I'm knowing in my head, this is a bad idea because he's, you know, inebriated. However, before everybody freaks out that I allowed myself and my daughter to drive in the car, we're in a place where there are no other vehicles and an accident would be, you can't drive more than like five miles an hour. So an accident would be very, very, it would be almost impossible where we are. So there was no other people out on the road. We're driving around the field and he said, uh, uh, I want to, let's go back to New York. I think we should go back to New York. We should get out of here. My mom and my daughter said, you go back to New York. I'm going to stay with mommy. And I, she's about four at this time. And he said, oh yeah, why don't I just fucking kill myself then? Let me just kill myself. Should I just kill myself then? And my daughter luckily isn't really understanding what this is, but I'm saying, stop it. Stop. No, please stop right now. Don't say anything else. She's like, well, you go to New York and I'll just live with mommy and, or I'll, I'll go to New York with mommy and you stay here. So we're driving around the field and he's saying, you know, he's going to just kill himself and he's getting so angry at us. And he's like, you know what? Fuck both of you. Why don't you both go to back to New York? I don't need either of you. So my daughter leaves the truck, goes to our car, buckles herself into her car seat and said, mommy, let's go. Let's go. Let's get out of here. So I walk up onto the deck and I say to him, are you okay? And he said, if you say anything to anybody about me killing myself, I will kill me. The cop tries to come here and I'll shoot you too. So at this point I get into our car and I drive away with my daughter in the back and I start circling the neighborhood. Now, again, this is one of those points where a lot of people say, well, why don't you just drive off? I mean, what is going on with, why would you stay? And I, I'm going to go back to the house at the beginning of this podcast. Remember the house and how I described it. You love this house. This house is comfortable. You know this house, even though it's changed and it's scary, it's still the house that you fell in love with and you still feel okay there. So it's this point where you're saying to yourself, he wouldn't really, would he? Or am I imagining this? Or is this as bad as I think it is? He's just having a grumpy night. So you're trying to rationalize in your head all these reasons why you should stay. And I'm driving and driving and driving around town. And finally I go, literally the voice of my dad, (laughs) my former cop says, what the fuck are you doing? Get out. This is not safe. This is unsafe. You're unsafe. So I drive this to a hotel. And as soon as I get there, I cut the tracker off of my phone and I park in the back and my phone starts exploding with messages. You cut me off of the tracker. You're blocking me. Um, just, you know, what the fuck are you doing? Don't ever come back. You're abscond- you've absconded with my child. Where are you? And I'm just in this hotel room, terrified. 
um, because I don't know what's next. I have no clothes. I have my daughter. I have myself. I don't even have a toothbrush. And uh, I call my mom and I say, Mom, I don't even know if I have enough money to pay for this because he has all he controls the finances. And, you know, I, I don't I'm not allowed to spend. I basically have no money. So I have to call her and say, can you help me out and pay for this hotel room for the night? Um, I stay there for two nights and I am meaning to come back to get my stuff to leave. And I get love bombing number five, you know, where he's just like, I don't know what, you know, I had a bad night and you're overreacting. You know, I stay super shit when I'm drunk and that's kind of the way I am. And you should know me better by now. Um, So, yeah, so I get drawn back in. And I think to myself at this point, surely, surely, surely this is the end. Surely this won't happen again. This can't get worse. This is as bad as it's ever going to get. And at this point, I have called domestic violence hotline several times. I visited the domestic violence center in New York. I've spoken to a police officer. I visited the domestic violence center here where I am now. Um, And everybody's telling me, you're in danger. Molly, from the movie goes, Molly, you're in danger, girl. You are in danger, and you can't continue to ignore or minimize what you're going through. You have to, you have to pay attention to it. Um, but that house beckons, and I go back, and things seem okay for a while. We start to, you know, make life here feel more normal, and we're staying here, and things are feeling okay. Um, and there are a few more of these violent episodes that occur where it usually starts with drinking. It ends with me hiding in a room with my daughter with the door closed, potentially him banging on it, screaming from the outside, get the fuck out of her room. You know, just your garden variety, like classic, just verbal, emotional, psychological, sexual abuse. We can make this better if you have sex with me. If you would just, you know, like be, if you would be physical with me, everything would be okay. Where we come to now, the last episode that's occurred before I've come to this point in the story. Um, and, all, you know, at this point, like I said, you have alarm bells going off. You're aware that there's a problem. You know what you're experiencing. You see the different cycles. You see the love bombing. You see the buildup. And sometimes those cycles are really long. Sometimes they last for months. And sometimes they only last for a day. But you're completely aware of everything that's happening. Um even through COVID, you know, I ended up getting COVID at one point and my husband, you know, most people would say, get in the room, stay in the room, close the room door. Let's, you know, we'll feed you through a slot and just stay in there and, you know, let's protect the rest of the family. His first question is, to, his first statement to me via text was, I'm still going to have sex with you. So, uh, and as soon as I felt that, as soon as I heard that, I said, well, I, I think it's better if we all get tested first. And he said, fine, stay up there by yourself then, you know be be alone so you know i i come out of of covid isolation potentially putting it everybody at risk like i'm i'm losing my mind now i'm not even behaving normally because i'm just trying to stay away from abuse but anyway going back to the story um we have this dog that's shown up on our property um it's been living with us for a few months it's not it's a dog that um for anybody that lives on or near a farm occasionally people will dump dogs on farms it's just something that they do sadly but they did that to us we ended up with this dog um i loved the dog he did not he found the dog to be irritating and to a point where he was physically where he was abusing the dog he would kick it he would poke it he would flick it he would 
threaten it. And this one night we were supposed to be, he would always demand that I put on lingerie and come into the room and hang out with him after we put our daughter to bed, which is also a process in and of itself. Um, but I, I was just so tired of going through this with him and I didn't want to put on lingerie and I didn't feel sexy. I just felt angry from being abused day in and day out. And um, when I didn't put on the lingerie and he had started to drink more, he said um, he had started flicking the dog um, on the nose who was sitting there. And I said, hey, you know, can you just please stop? Please stop doing that. It, it hurts her. And he said, this fucking dog? You're going to side with this fucking piece of shit dog that I don't want, that's annoying me, that pisses in my house, that doesn't belong here? Let me ask you something. If I was to say to you right now that you had to pick, either I go outside and shoot this dog in the fucking head, or you get the fuck out of my house, who are you going to side with? Are you going to side with me and let me go outside and shoot the fucking dog? Or are you going to get the fuck out of my house? So being terrified, I said, please, you know, please just don't, please don't do that. Um, and he got up off the couch and he walked across the room and he's um, six foot three and about 275 pounds. We're talking about a large guy and he squares off his shoulders and he comes very close to me. And he said, I will take the dog outside and fucking shoot it in the head or you get the fuck out of my house. Which one is it going to be? So I walked into the kitchen and I follow, I'm sorry, I followed him into the kitchen as he's start, starting to walk through the house to find the dog. This is not the first time, by the way, that he has threatened to hurt this dog. This is probably the second or third. Um, but I'm pleading with him. I'm saying, please don't, please don't. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I'm a huge animal lover. And I just didn't want anything to happen to him. So I'm following and all of a sudden he turns around. And he comes at me and he starts to corner me in the kitchen and he's punching the wall. He picks his foot up and kicks the sink as hard as he can. And he gets as close to me as he can and says, um, I'm going to shoot this fucking dog. You, you're going to pick this fucking dog. And he's all about me choosing the dog over him. And at this point, my knees start buckling because I'm so terrified that he's going to do something either to me or the dog or can my daughter hear this or what's happening. And I just start begging him just saying, please, please, please over and over. So I realized that at this point, if I follow him or try to help the dog, that I am probably going to be seriously hurt or killed. He is an inch away from striking me or potentially killing me. Um, so he goes, finds the dog, drags it, by the collar and starts pulling it out of the house and I'm sitting on now on a sofa that's outside of my daughter's room and I have my hands over my head and I hear him dragging the dog and outside he goes and lo and behold I hear um, three gunshots and I'm rocking on the sofa and just crying and shaking and I he comes back inside and he said um, if you I want you to get the fuck out of this room I don't like you up here you're too close to the door. Get out. Go to your room. So I go to my room, uh, my room, you know, because at this point we're like sleeping in separate bedrooms. And I lie in there and I'm shaking and I'm rocking and I just hear him stamping outside. Door flies open. You fucking did this. You couldn't be intimate with me. You could have fixed all this. You chose not to. Slam the door. He walks out. 
comes back in. I mean, at this point, he's probably had close to a bottle of whiskey. Like, it's really, you know, he's, he's really in it. And that happens several times until I start shaking so uncontrollably that I can't stop. I'm li- like I mentioned earlier that I had anxiety that's been at bay for a long time. but starts to not be at bay now. And I'm rocking back and forth. I can't stop myself from rocking. And I think I'm either having a nervous breakdown or something is happening to me that I am so terrified that I can't help myself. And he does that several times. Demands I have sex with him a few more times to make it better. And then eventually passes out in his room and goes to sleep. Um, I wake up in the morning convinced that this is the day I'm going to go. I have everything I need to. I've spoken with the domestic violence hotline. I've got a therapist that I've been talking to at this point. This is it. The end. My daughter can't witness this. And he love bomb number six he apologizes so profusely but still oddly blames me he said you know if you hadn't done if you would just listen to me if you hadn't done all that we wouldn't even be in this position it's because you're such a miserable bitch it's because of everything that you do um i had been home i I need to say one other thing that also led up to this i had actually gone home to my family for thanksgiving and brought my daughter which is something i never thought would happen and he texted me the entire time telling me what a miserable bitch I was and what a piece of shit my family is and I can't even pay him attention. So that was sort of the, that kind of fed into this explosion as well. But right now, here we are, as I sit in my car in a parking lot, I have all the pieces in place. I am ready to file a restraining order. I've got a, a, an ad for a place, a, a um, furnished rental i've been looking at at craigslist my parents know his family knows um everybody's at the ready it's just me taking the step it's 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 leaving the house it's feeling the fear the uncertainty and that's what it really is about an abusive relationship that i think so many people can relate to it's it's hope and fear hope that things will change and get better and go back to the way they were and fear of the unknown of stepping out of that house and not knowing what waits for you out there. You know, well, will things get worse? Most likely they will. When I leave, will I be hurt? Possibly. I might even be killed by leaving this relationship. So right now it's about building strength, letting people know that something's wrong, hearing myself speak about these horrible incidents and, And as I say them, I understand the atrocity involved and then actually building the courage to make a change for my daughter because she is going to do what I am doing. She is going to be me in the future. Um, She has experienced abuse, which I haven't spoke about here, simply by being present, but also by things that he's done to her. So I am... And just so everyone knows, he is not hitting her. He is not sexually abusing her. It's the things that he says that I find to be awful. Um, So I just, I felt like I needed to put that in there because um, my daughter's safety is is of the utmost importance to me. And I think sometimes when people hear this, they think what a monster, I feel like a monster. Why, Why hasn't she taken action? Just know that I am trying and that I, 
I do see a change for myself and I feel that I'm nearing the end of this story. I really do. So when it comes to the fear of leaving and the safety, you know, the safety of staying and what people don't understand is that, you know, I'm sure this might be for you is that there's some sort of safety in staying in the sense of, you know, how to control situations a lot and you know how to control stuff within the home to kind of keep safe within that environment. And it's possible that when you leave that environment, the person could become more unhinged than ever and your safety in without knowing where that person is all the time, you might feel that your safety is a little bit compromised, that you're a little blind in, in that fact compared to before. Um, so if you are feeling that way, you know, what have the professionals told you that, uh, things that you can do? Um, and as far as the barriers, um, of, you know, you know, taking your child and being in hiding so he doesn't know where you are. What were, the, what are the things that you've been told to do in, in these situations to keep yourself as safe as possible? Um, and is what so I said fair about like w- how you're feeling? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that's exactly how I feel. You know, there, what's so, what you said is it almost is like, you understand this so clearly because there is safety in proximity. You know, if I'm in the other room, even I don't know what's happening, but if I'm in the same room, I'm at least aware of where he is or what he's doing, you know? So safety in proximity feels counterintuitive, but it's really not being near somebody means that you are, you have inventory on what they're doing. Um, So yeah, that's absolutely very true. As far as safety planning, I mean, there, you know, I have a key that's hidden in the car. I've got a bag that's packed. You know, I've got um, photocopied documents. I have a diary that I've written with all of the incidents spelled out um, in a secret place. I've got, um, I'm opening, I haven't done it yet, but I will be opening a private bank account um, and, and shuttling some money into that. Um when I'm in the house, that is kind of, I was kind of laughing, but there was a moment when I was in the kitchen being cornered, but like, well, this is the safe place to be right now. I'm surrounded by knives. Um, so, you know, making sure that if you are in a situation where there it is escalating, that you put yourself not in a room where there's hard surfaces that you put, I have unlocked all of my windows so that I'm able to get out through the window if needed. Um, that you're just basically, it's like being on an airplane, aware of your exits at all times. Um, and yeah, just, uh, that's what most people have told me. The other thing that I did a safety assessment recently and it was off the chart. I mean, it basically was like as dangerous as possible that a situation that you could be in, but, um, and I've spoken to many professionals and a lot of them say, you know, every woman for the most part or man or you know every person i should say that starts out in a relationship like this never dreams that the person they're with will one day cause them harm and in your situation you're in a place where that person 
could cause your death and you're not thinking that that's possible, but it very much is. And um, I, she, they said, you know, most women that were killed by their significant others, or I should say again, most people that have been killed by their significant other in an abusive relationship don't realize that they're going to be killed until it's too late. So I think that's the biggest concern that most people have had is that there's, there's, there's a recipe for disaster and that um, my biggest need is to keep putting myself into a situation where I minimize that as much as possible. The, the thing that they want me to do is to file a restraining order, go no contact and get myself out. Um, and that's the thing that feels the safest. However, that's also scary because that's putting gasoline on a fire. You know, if you know somebody that's truly a narcissist and you do that to them, that is like the ultimate affront. So that feels to me like as if I'm asking for a disaster. So that's also very scary as well. And also, if you you do that, I would say you're, you're in the home state of his family, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. I would I, I would tell the family beforehand, I'm not going to be in contact with you. You know, you get a new phone as well. You don't give them any information about where you are because if he can access their home, um, he might be able to act, you know, you're trying to get as many weak, you don't know who could be a weak hand. If exactly. That, if that, that, if yeah. that makes sense. So keeping those people in the dark is the safest thing to do. I, they should understand, but you know, you know, if they, if he can go into their home contact, if they can look through their records and find a new phone number or anything that they might've written down, he might have that accessibility. So I would also recommend uh, doing that with them. And, you know, you know, when it comes to, you know, where you are now, and, and, and leaving the first time I met you, you know, the first thing after listening to you and what you're dealing with and, you know, you weren't feeling great that you were still in this position and that you couldn't leave. And, and my response to you was, well, you're here and <laughs> yeah. you got yourself to this point. We're talking we were in a group setting. Other people were listening to you. There was so much maneuvering to get you to this point. And you're at this point where you're, you're really, really at the edge for what will be your last time. And you know it will be your last time. And uh, it takes a lot to get to where you are now. It takes a lot for you to talk to me today. And this is probably a big part when you listen to this, you know, yourself, um, mm-hmm. it'll be a big thing for you to listen to yourself Yeah. Uh, um, to get that last oomph that is needed, you know, and, you know, it's, you know, you've been very brave the whole entire time in this. You've been very strong, super strong to deal what you've been dealing with for this long to have your head so clear takes a tremendous amount of work to make a tremendous amount of strength to be who you are, where you are and where you are right now. And everyone listening today 
everyone who's been touched by you, your story. You've given strength to other people today. And hopefully we are giving strength to you as the last bit that you need to start a new life, to be safe, for your daughter to be safe, and for you to live again, not in fear, in happiness, in love, in joy. And, you know, that's what you deserve. And we're here for you. Yeah, I I can't say enough thank yous, um, really, uh, this community of people that are here and listening and supporting um, through the support group and just by um, being present is it's something that you feel and it's you know it's funny it's one of those groups that you never want to be a part of but you're surely glad that you are um, and I, I do feel a tremendous amount of healing just in sharing and I look forward to a time when I get to know myself again because I don't really know who I am anymore so I keep looking to the future um, and I, I have hope that things will change for me for the better and that I will once again be able to live in a, a, a life of ease and harmony. So usually at this point of talking, I say, what are your words of wisdom for everyone listening? But today, I'm going to change that. So what is the words of wisdom or advice that you'd like to give to yourself today? Um, the, the words of advice that I would give to myself is that love is not enough. Meaning that you can love somebody with your heart and soul and that isn't necessarily enough. Um, on the flip side of that, Loving yourself or putting value in yourself is the most important thing that you can do. It's the way out. It's, it's the, it's, it's the escape, believing in your worth, believing that you are, are important in life. We tend to put so much value into what other people think and into what other people say about us and then how we come across to others. But what really, really should matter the most is how you come across to yourself and and how you treat yourself. Um, I look at it, too, as a model for my daughter. You know, I'm, I'm, I love my child so much, and I, I want her, I want everything for her. And remember her in every action that you take. It's for her. It's not just me. You know, there's more than one person in this story. It's for her. So, um that was kind of a roundabout way, but <laughs> saying love yourself, care for yourself, um, put yourself first and it will all be okay. Well, Maud, you did it. We're, <laughs> we're here. We're at the, we're at the end. And as I said before, uh, you know, y- you, you really are going to change a lot of people's lives today. You know, not just your own. And it's been an honor to talk to you and, and, and listen to your story. And we all wish, uh, everyone listening wishes nothing but the, the safest uh, journeys for you. And we hope to have you on very soon again 
yes. to, to chat, you know, closure, see what happened. Uh, if we do a special episode, we'll kind of bring you on maybe to tell the little bit of the end, but we're, you know, it's, it's, it's really been an honor. So thank you for, for sharing with us and trusting all of us with everything that's uh, your, with your life, really. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here. And yeah, I look forward to what the future holds. So once again, a really big thank you to Maud. And as you're listening uh, to me right now, this is after the fact and, you know, looking or looking back at this episode, you know, what you didn't see from me or you didn't hear is I was pretty scared uh, during this episode uh, towards the end. And as Maud's story became uh, more clear and I understood it more and we understood more of the threat that was happening, I began to become pretty nervous with Maud sitting in the car. I did my best to not show it uh, to Maud while it was going on. And I actually caught myself when I was getting into some fear-based talk there. I started saying to myself, just stop it right now. Uh, It will not help the situation. But Maud was as cool as a cucumber throughout the whole entire thing. I think I was more nervous than her. And I was really scared. Like what happens if we get caught in this moment right now? And I was thinking really worst case scenario stuff. I was really, really nervous. So, uh, it was, uh, to me like a really important episode here for everyone who's having trouble leaving, uh, such as Maud, uh, she did a fantastic job. So really, again, once again, from the bottom of my heart to Maud, thank you very much. And for other people that want to be a guest on our show, like Maud today, uh, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. At the top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. And when you click on that button, it will take you to a page with all of our instructions. You can fill out the guest form or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. And as well at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have a community support button at the top of the page. It's our very own safe social network. So you click on that button and it will take you to our very own forums. We have integrated Zoom meetings on Wednesday nights and Saturday nights. And we now have one on Thursday afternoons for those people that can't make night meetings and for the European folks as well. And we also have episodes that never made it to air. We we have ad-free episodes. We just have a great group of people, and it's growing and growing. So if you want to join our community group, our support group, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, press that support button. And if you need even more support, everyone, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone because DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. And you can connect with local resources like shelters and find ways to heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource. And once again, a really big thank you to Maud for being our guest this week. I know Maud is going to help so many people out there. So a big thank you to Maud. And from Maud and myself, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>